Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study, and we ask that your spirit will join us. May we draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. If you're hearing some noise today, there's a church group, I think, having a wedding that they rented that space to, that uh, they've got a PA system that we don't have, and uh, there's an organ that's about to play. So uh, we'll do our best to have class here today. It's good to be back. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Oslo, Norway, speaking to the Scandinavian Adventist Health Association, uh, which is the um, health professionals. uh, And there were people there from Norway and Sweden and Latvia and Iceland. And and it was a really, uh, really fun time. Good people. And they really enjoyed the programs we put on. And then last weekend and this past Wednesday, I spoke in Aachen, Germany, doing some health lectures there. And they were also very, very well received. And, And then we got back yesterday. So um, I got up at four in the morning this morning uh, because uh, the jet lag issue going on. Our memory text is the Nehemiah 1322. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning these, uh, this also and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. In Bible symbolism, who do the Levites represent? The priesthood of believers. So what would the cleansing themselves represent? The Levites were to cleanse themselves. What would that represent to the priesthood of believers, to us? Heart cleansing. Transformation of character, healing heart by the washing of the Holy Spirit. It says in Titus 3, 4 through 7, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So cleansing ourselves as the Levites, would that mean having the Holy Spirit transform our hearts and minds? Yes. Okay. Consider this description of what the Holy Spirit does from the book Desire of Ages. See if you agree with this description or not. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the, exalt, for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to the satanic satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person, capitalized, of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes partaker of the divine nature. So, do you agree or disagree with that quotation from the Desire of Ages? Do you see why Satan attacks the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and puts forth an argument there is no Holy Spirit? If we don't have the Spirit working to make effectual in our lives, then we don't become partakers of the divine nature. We don't get regenerated. We don't get renewed. 
So if you look through history, Satan began his war in heaven opposing the Father's rule, trying to make it appear the Father was untrustworthy by attacking the position of the Son and the Son's privileges. But he failed in his attack to dethrone the Father. So he deceives humankind, and as a Savior is promised, he begins working to try and obstruct Jesus' mission, to try to stop Jesus from coming as our Savior. That's the whole dynamic of the whole Testament. But he, he fails in that, so he tries to kill Jesus while he's on earth as a baby, but he fails in that. So he tries to tempt Jesus to corrupt his character, but he fails in that. And they failed to dethrone the Father. He failed to stop Jesus from his mission. So now Satan's attack is on the third member of the Godhead. Uh, there is no Holy Spirit. Okay, don't, don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't engage with the Holy Spirit. Don't ask the Holy Spirit into your life. I believe this is one of the greatest purposes of Islam. Islam's prime thing is there is no trinity. There's one individual God, not a triune God. And I think this is one of its main purposes, to oppose the trinity and have a, a very rules-based, behavior-based religion uh, in which there is no real other-centered love modeled in the Godhead or actually um, functioning in the Godhead. Yes, you had a hand up. It seems like, from what I've seen, that some people who try and reject and attack the Trinity, they say that, well, the Holy Spirit is just God's Spirit. Right. Right, they do. She says third person. She does say here third person. And so she had the view of a trinity. For me, the best... Uh, now, you can go through. I've got it on our website. If you look up trinity, you can see all the Bible references and the Hebrew and the language references and the, and the, and the citations that support the, this idea of three members of the Godhead. But for me, the best evidence of the trinity is how, understanding the reality of how love functions. In order for love to function, it requires an other. Love doesn't function or exist in the singularity. Okay? Love is other-centered. It's outward-moving. It's giving. It's beneficent. And if we believe God is love, and, and yet we believe that there was a time in history past, in, in eternity past, where God was a singularity before the Son was formed, as some will say, then there was a time God was not outward-moving. God was a singularity. He wasn't love. He wasn't functionally love. But if God is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're always other-centered, always giving. And the minimum number for that is not two. The minimum number is three. Because when you have just two, you can have reinforcing self-worship and narcissistic reinforcement. Where one is being worshipped by the other and the other is worshipping them. And do you see this in couples sometimes? Young couples will marry and they're all into their spouse and the spouse is all into them and they're just adoring and petting and adoring and it goes on for several years. Maybe a decade. Until the first child comes along. And then when the first child comes along and the mother now has this great bond and this devotion to the child, the husband, who was not really other-centered but was, was uh, relishing the adoration and all the time that was being spent on him, becomes angry and jealous now. This wasn't love. It looked like love, but it wasn't love. Minimum number for other-centered love is three. And then if you look at the Godhead, how they function and how we have it described in Scripture you will see that Jesus, uh, the Father, is always giving his power, authority to Christ. Always giving it to Christ. 
All authority has been given to me. And Christ is always using it to glorify the Father. And the Son is turning the hearts and minds to both the Son and the Father. I mean, excuse me, the Spirit is turning hearts and minds to Son and Father. So you see, none of them are seeking for self. They're always seeking to uplift the other member. This is how love functions. Notice Satan attacked the Father, Satan attacked the Son, and Satan now is attacking the work of the Holy Spirit or the fact that there is a a Holy Spirit. Don't buy into that. Uh, The God that Jesus revealed is love, and true Christians are those who love like God loves. And we love all people from all cultures and all races all the time. But loving people does not mean we collude. Or in fact, when we love people, we do not collude with their destruction. We don't participate and actively engage in their destruction, do we? Isn't that right? If we love them? We, might, we speak the truth in love. We may leave them free to their own choices, but we don't become participants in their destruction. We don't support it. We don't speak in favor of it. We don't collude with the lies about it. So, love for a smoker does not make smoking healthy. Your love and God's love for a smoker does not make smoking healthy. The laws of health are being violated, and loving that person doesn't change the damaging results of smoking. Everybody get that? Love for the person who has multiple sexual partners doesn't make them mature. Their characters develop in healthy lines, or for them to avoid the destructive results of that. The law of love is as well as the laws of health are being violated with that type of behavior. And your love and God's love for them doesn't change that. In order for that to be changed, they have to repent and have the Spirit work in them to put them back in harmony with God's character and laws, right? The laws on their hearts and minds. Loving people who worship false gods doesn't make their minds, your love for them, God's love for them, doesn't make their minds and hearts grow into godliness. The law of worship is being violated and they will become like the God they worship. And God's perpetual patience and grace and love and your love will not change the damage if they continue to worship a false God. Yes? It's important for us to remember though that we are not responsible for that outcome. And so sometimes my interaction with someone who has a bad habit, such as smoking or whatever, is more destructive to that person if I attack the smoking and don't let them worry about their results, their smoking, and be worried more about their whole being in other aspects. So I might have a good friend who smokes. I don't want them to smoke. I think it's unhealthy for them to smoke. But if I constantly dwell on them, about their smoking, I will no longer be their friend in the sense that I can no longer communicate with them. They will shut me off from whatever actions I may have in other realms. Okay. So um, how do you apply that uh, in real day-to-day operation? Do you let them smoke in your car? No. Do you let them smoke in your house? No. Do you let them smoke around your grandchildren? I don't have any grandchildren. So I haven't gotten to that point yet. But if you had grandchildren, do you let them smoke around your grandchildren? Hopefully not. So, so you see, so you are actually constantly setting boundaries that uh, I don't, I'm not going to judge you, but you're sending a message continually that you're not going to participate and collude. If they want to do that, there's a line that you're not willing to let their friendship cross. 
And this is where design law comes in. This idea of cheap grace. I want to be gracious. So we let people who are participating in destructive activities participate in those destructive activities to to the idea that they come to believe that we accept that as healthy. It's okay. All my friends say it's accept me still, so it must be okay. When it comes to smoking, you are correct. There's hardly anybody in the world today that doesn't know the damage and results of smoking. However, you're, it's not so when it comes to many other things in society today. Our society is filled with deeply embedded lies that, that truth is falsehood, falsehood is truth, that this is healthy when it's actually destructive. We're talking about relationships, we're talking about how we think, and so you hear things, well, well that's your truth. That's not my truth. So when it comes to smoking, everybody gets that. But so many other things, and this is where I'm going, that we as Christians, we have to have a certain understanding of reality, which is design law-based. And we don't participate or cross those lines. And we don't let people think that while we love them, and I love you, and so you're a friend. I love you, man. You're my friend. But your smoking's killing you, and I'm going to love you just... And so I do this with my patients all the time. I tell my patients, hey, as your doctor, I'm going to love you just as much as your doctor, no matter whether you quit smoking or don't quit smoking. I won't change my attitude towards you. But you guess what? That really won't matter. Your lungs are going to get worse. You're going to get heart disease. You're going to have all kinds of problems. But you know what? I will still be... But you're going to get worse no matter what I do, whether it's smoking or... You know what? I will like you just as much, even if you continue to cheat on your spouse. As your doctor, I'm not going to dislike you. But I'm going to feel sad for you because you're going to feel more fear, more anxiety. You're going to lie more. Your character, you're not going to have more joy. You're going to have more peace. You're going to have more health. But, but I won't dislike you. Your relationship isn't going to get better with your wife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And having that conversation where we disentangle our personal like or dislike for the person and our love for them as a human being from what they're actually doing. Because when we, when we come at it under the imperial law model, which is the way almost historically all of Christianity in the world does it, that you've done a bad thing, and if I care about you, then I've got to judge you. And I've got to hold you accountable. And I've got to discipline you. I've got to chastise you. I've got to take an action to punish you in some way. And you see this. So a child that comes out as gay to their parents. The parents often will say, well, uh, you can't come in our home anymore. Or you're not part of this family if that's the, in other words, they'll disown them and, and uh, because they feel like they have this moral obligation because it's, it's something bad that they have to punish. But, but if they had a more mature view, even if, even if they thought it was wrong, they would say, hey, I love you, but my, and, and I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm going to let reality come to bear in your life. We don't have to have an argument over whether this is right or wrong. If it's wrong, it's going to be destructive over time. If it's not wrong, it's not going to be destructive because you can't violate God's laws without damage. You can't do it. So I don't have to argue. I'm just going to love you. Let the Holy Spirit come to bring truth to your mind so that you come to an understanding of how is the healthiest way for you to live your life. The person is then the lost sheep that needs to be sought. Yes, we seek the lost sheep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first point is that the Levites 
priesthood believers to cleanse themselves by surrendering themselves to God for washing and room of the heart by the Holy Spirit, washing away lies, truth washing away lies, love washing away selfishness, partakers of the divine nature. That's, that's the first part of the memory verse. Second part is that we become... Um, we are to guard the gates, is what it says. What does that mean to us today? They had physical gates there they were to guard. What does it mean for us? To, what do the gates represent? So, so one, one possibility is our senses, our eyes, our ears, what's coming into our own, our own you know, gates to our own spirit temple. Okay. I had a lot of difficulty with this, this week's lesson just because of force and... Power We're going to get to that. But we can establish guidelines for institutional function that are healthy without being um, coercive. So what's the gate represent? That's what we're asking. Gate, what's it represent? We want to have application, not just theory. Does it have a real-life application? They were guarding the gates. We are the priests of believers. What are the gates we're guarding? Okay, gates to our heart. I think that's an application that was already said, gates to our heart. But 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 what did Jesus say in the metaphor of the sheep pen? He was the door. He's the door. He's I am the way. He's the gate. How do we guard the gate if Jesus is the gate, the way, the door, the entry point? How do we guard it? But because by guarding the truth about who he is, not colluding with all the distorted views of Christ. He said there are many false messiahs going to the world. Christ has been misrepresented. There are many. He said, they will take my name, Lord, we prophesied in your name, but they were never his friends. Why? Because people didn't guard the truth about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So those of us who've had our hearts pure, who actually know him, we guard those gates, those gates of truth. You remember that uh, when we take the, 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 the power of Christ, it says the gates of hell will not prevail. We demolish strongholds. And the gates of uh, hell are the lies that we believe about God. That's, that's, that's what keeps our minds blocked. Yes? would be a way of not guarding the gates because you yourself are presenting an improper view of Christ by the way you live and behave and treat people and so on. Very well said. Very well said. So, we are to first cleanse ourselves. We're to guard the truth about who Christ is and what he has revealed about his Father. And then um, we are to sanctify the Sabbath. Sanctify, sanctify the Sabbath. That's the King, New King James. Sanctify the Sabbath. Hmm. Other versions say, instead of using the word sanctify the Sabbath, they say keep the Sabbath holy. Other versions use that language. Or some, some use the words observe the Sabbath. Some use keep the Sabbath. Who made the Sabbath holy? Can we change that? Can we do anything to make it more holy than it is? Can we do anything to make it less holy than it is? So does our conduct in relation to the Sabbath do anything to the Sabbath? So are you keeping the Sabbath holy, or are you keeping yourself holy? should be keeping yourself holy. Does keeping the Sabbath have any, have any impact on us in reality? 
So what is the purpose of the Sabbath? It was made for man. For what purpose? What was it? It was made for man for a purpose. For what purpose? Rest and rejuvenation. Rest, rejuvenation. There is absolute good evidence. We're going to talk about that briefly. But good evidence that Sabbath rest is rejuvenating for our minds and our physical body. It's healthy for us. There's no question. Communion with God. Do you think it was made by God as a, I don't want to cheapen it with this word, but as a tool, as an aid, as a device, as a mechanism, as a resource, whichever adjective works best, in his making us holy? Well, this is uh, Exodus 31.13. You must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Is the Sabbath in some way a, a device created by God to assist us in his making us holy? What would holiness be? How would you describe holiness? Could we describe it as unity and genuine at complete at one with God? When we become fully restored, 100% back to one with God, will we be holy? Yes. And would such purity and unity with God mean that we are living in harmony with all of God's laws? Yes. They've been restored fully into our hearts, minds, characters, and we live them out fully. Wait, wait, wait let me finish the point. And what kind of laws are God's laws? Design laws. So, would this mean having God's laws fully and completely restored in us, written them on the hearts and minds, that we live in harmony with them, that we then experience what? Holiness, but we experience healthiness in all domains. We will be restored and glorified one day where we have perfect health of mind, body, character, relationships, we will be holy because we will be perfectly in harmony with all of God's laws. We will have perfect health in all domains. Now, a couple of comments or questions. Russell? It's important to remember that Adam and Eve needed yet to be made holy. Because that's, that's where the Sabbath was created. Okay, this is a great point. This is a great point. Because, yeah, 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 let's, let's, let's talk about this. Hold on, I wanted to go through this. Hold on. You're getting tired ahead of me now that you brought this up. Adam and Eve in Eden, did they have perfect physical health in Eden prior to sin? Yes. yes. And did they have good relational or were perfect? They didn't have any selfishness in their relationships. Did they? So they had the perfect other-centered love relationships. Okay? And they didn't have any uh, psychological unwellness where they, believe, they were telling them, I'm no good and I'm unhealthy. So they weren't psychologically unhealthy. But where were they not perfectly healthy? In character development. Character cannot be created. It has to be developed by the exercise of choices. And so the Sabbath was also an agency or tool for them to exercise choice in their development, just as the tree. The tree was also there for that device as well. Yes? So in other words, you're saying that uh, not choosing to follow a wrong path or a sinful path is a fast track to character development. It is. By choosing what's healthy. That's exactly right. Yes. Well said. So, 
It is often described the test in this class before. We've talked about the purpose of a test. A test is not always um, something that is negative. It's, it's often a instructional device, a assessment device, or whatever. And in that sense, the Sabbath could also be a test. When you lift weights, are you testing your strength? Yeah, you, you are. You're testing your strength by lifting weights. But you're also building your strength. You're doing both. That's right. And so uh, you don't get stronger without something to resist in certain ways. And Adam and Eve were presented with a choice at the tree. Do they believe God? Do they believe the serpent? That choice has a direct impact on their own internal character development. The Sabbath is also evidence of God's character of love, how he is the creator who built all things to operate upon design laws, and then... He rested, giving us freedom to think. No coercion, no pressure. 24 hours aside, guys, come to your own conclusions. I rest my case. Weigh it out, come to your own conclusions. So the weekly Sabbath is evidence of the character of the one who wields power, that he doesn't coerce, he leaves us free. That's very powerful, that evidence. So those who are priests of believers are to cleanse in their hearts and minds, be cleansed in their hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit, guard the avenues or the gates of truth, leading people back to the knowledge of God as revealed in Christ, keep themselves holy by trusting God with their entire lives, resting in him on Sabbath, and living out the principles embodied in the Sabbath all week long. Truth, presenting love, leaving people free. So that's our memory text. Uh, let's go to Sunday's lesson. First paragraph, uh, Nehemiah begins with a concern about the Ammonites and the Moabites, foreigners or idolaters in, in their midst. These verses do not speak about driving away individuals from a different nation or race uh, who followed God, but rather they refer to sending away those who were of a different faith, not converts, but idolaters. This is an excellent point the lesson makes. Excellent point and needs to be emphasized. God is not a racist, nor does he give preference to people based on race or skin color or genetics. It is all about character. Abraham trusted God. It was about his character that he uh, found favor. And it is all about reality, separating truth from lies, separating destructive elements from healing elements. Separating disease from wellness. This is all about reality. Therefore, any person from any genetic background who embraces the truth about God and is willing to be converted in heart to live God's principles is welcome into the kingdom of God and into ancient Israel. But those who refuse God and instead to choose to keep their own systems and rules and methods and God's we're not welcome into Israel and are not welcome into the kingdom of God. We'll get to you in a minute, Linda. Why? Why are they not welcome into the kingdom of God? Ah, uh-huh, now we're getting there. I see. This idea I've heard many times from many people. Uh, you, you know, uh, do you, do you, you, you want to know who's going to be safe to be your neighbor in heaven and, and that kind of thing. I think that actually really is not reality at all. That's based on an imperial law model. Uh, when you understand reality, what happens to a corrupt, sinful, degenerate heart in the presence of God's unveiled glory? When the rivers of fire come out from his throne and we stand in it, thousands and thousands and ten thousand, what happens to, to the people that have been unregenerate when that fire flows? There is, it's a self-evident situation. You'll never have to worry about somebody in heaven being your neighbor who's not fit to be there. Can't be there. It's not possible. 
And so understanding design law and how design law works, then you understand why they won't be in heaven and why they're not invited to be in heaven. Not because God doesn't want them there, but because they can't exist there. They can't survive there. They can't live there. It'd be like saying, you're not invited by the fish to live underwater. You can't live underwater with the fish. You don't have gills to breathe. Yes. Satan, when he, before he's thrown out of heaven, Yes, because of God's grace. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, Romans chapter 3. He did not allow the consequences to be reaped. Uh, uh, God could have uh, punished Satan and all of his sympathizers as when cast, or destroy Satan and all his sympathizers as when cast the pebble to the earth. But to do this uh, would have been a precedent to force and compelling powers found only under Satan's government. Additionally, the lies in, uh, that he told would not have been um, resolved by eliminating him at that moment. So God's grace allowed him to survive just as we have been allowed to survive after Adam's sin so that the plan of salvation can be carried out. Yes? God has a situation. He created But the situation is he made a promise that someday there would be no more sin or sadness and all those things. And so there has to be a line in the sand somewhere. There must be. He's got to, at the end, have a group of people that are for his program. You saw that line in the sand, I would tell you that line has always been there, and it's never changing and never wavering, and that line is his character of love, and all of his laws are design protocols that never change. You can't change a sinner. Linda, you had a comment. I wanted to point out that the Moabites and the Ammonites were actually lost descendants. Right, through incest, yes. Abraham and, and Lot were you know, related, and so you have, it's, it's important to bring that out because it can be the closest person to you. Lot was close, he had the ability to, to you know, see what Abraham was like and follow those principles, but instead, he went out uh, to the, he, he left Sodom, and after he left Sodom, his children, his daughters got him drunk and had children by their own father, and they turned into the Ammonites and the Moabites, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be within Israel because Ruth was a Moabitess and uh, so on. But it's interesting to me to think that we think of others, you know, as not knowing God. These people had every opportunity to know God and to follow him. But And they lived right next to the Israelites. But uh, as in today's society, that can also be true that the people very closest to us, who might be an influence on us, um, I think part of the, the issue about what that we're discussing this week is how do we how do we love others but not adopt their position or allow that to, to cause us to move away from what we believe like Lot moved away from Abraham. The lesson describes corruption in the leadership and how the high priest allowed one of the enemies of Israel to have a room in the temple as a permanent residence. What's the object lesson for us today? Is there an object lesson for us in that? Yes. What is is the core difference between God's government and governments of the world? Core difference. Root difference. Foundational difference. God's government... A government is built upon truth, God's care. It's law. Governments are built on its law. Our government's built on our constitution. So God's law is design law. 
all human governments are built on imposed law, a system of rules that require punishment. So at its root, God's government is the laws upon which reality work. Human governments are arbitrary rules that require enforcement of, of, uh, of, uh, of breaches of the law and require enforcement of the law. So what might it look like if leaders of the church let leaders of the world into the temple to reside here? Might it not look like we teach God's law looks like human law? And we teach that God is the source and justice of inflicted pain and suffering for rule-breaking. In order to be just, he must use his power to torture and kill those who break his rules. Were the Moabites and the Ammonites being punished because of the sins of their fathers and hiring Baal? Sounds like that in the first people. So he asked the question, were the Moabites being punished for the sins of their fathers? So Ezekiel says that the father, uh, the son will not be punished for the sins of the father, and the father will not be punished for the sins of the son, that each one reaps what they sow for themselves. And so if uh, there is any sins being passed down through the generations, there are consequences epigenetically that we can inherit from our parents. So if our parents do heavy drugs or drink or a mother drinks a lot of alcohol, that child will be born with consequences that they wouldn't have otherwise physiologically that can make it harder for them. Makes it stronger in their propensities. And in the environment in which they grow up, they can learn the same behaviors as their parents. Thus, they participate willingly at their own age. And that then multiplies and brings the punishment or consequences upon themselves. So there can be this kind of degradation of a society over time because of what the parents are teaching their children, but if you're asking if God uses power to punish the kids, no, the punishment comes from the consequences of what is passing down through the generations, as I understand it. Yes? They were restricted from being part of the Israel for 10th generation. That sounds like forever. So, so where did you find that? Well, I'd have to look it up. But, I mean, it's- and I would like to see how many generations down Ruth was. I'd like to count her generations. You can count them in the, in the lineage of Christ. And you can count back and see, was she 10 generations down from Moab? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'd like to look that up. I don't know. I don't know the answer. But that would be an interesting question to test the theory first. To see if, if in the, very simple, if she wasn't, then that doesn't apply. If she was, then we'd have to look further to see if there's further evidence. The lesson made a point that the Israelites were to be separated from idolaters. What makes a person an idolater? Well, I'm just going to cut to the chase on this. From faith I live by, this is what they say. Thousands have false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. And what is is it that makes them an idolater? The concept of God they hold. If we hold a concept of God as the, uh, the inflictor of pain and punishment, this was what Baal was. Then, then, then we are to separate from that. Could Christianity be suffering because many of its leaders have accepted false attributes of God and are leading people to believe false attributes of God? Yes. So I'm going to jump into Monday's lesson. The lesson points out that the people stopped giving their tithes and offerings. Why? Why did they stop giving their tithes and offerings? They didn't want to fund Tobias in the temple. This is exactly, the lesson points this out. The leadership had become corrupt, and the funds are being diverted away from God's purposes to other purposes. So, were the people holding their support from God? No. Okay, this is an important point. Are you saying that the people should have actually thought about where they put their money or just turn it in every week to the temple? Blindly. 
What about today? Should people blindly give their tithes and offerings, or should they consider to whom they are giving it and how it's being used? Third paragraph says, It's fascinating to see that all of Judah came together again and rebuilt what had been destroyed. The people were on Nehemiah's side against Tobiah and Eliashib. Because they uh, must have realized that Nehemiah did everything he could for the benefit of the people. Additionally, Nehemiah entrusted the temple grounds overseers' positions to men who he considered faithful and trustworthy. Nehemiah came to uproot the corrupt system of leadership seeming, seemingly in one fell swoop. What object lessons apply for us today? Is there an object lesson to us? Could it suggest that Christians might find themselves in churches in which leadership has joined with the teachings of the world, accepting the lie that God's law is like human law and thereby teaching lies about God and obstructing God's plan to actually cleanse the spirit temple? Could it mean that we have a problem like this? And as people, we need to start standing up for what's true. I'm going to read the third paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. It says, When God calls for the tithe, he makes no appeal to gratitude or generosity. Although gratitude should be part of all of our expressions to God, we tithe because God has commanded it. Is it wrong to return tithe to the Lord? Absolutely not. It is not wrong. In fact, it's right to return tithe to the Lord. But could the reason we tithe to the Lord have a different impact upon us? If we return tithe to the Lord because he has commanded it, and if we don't, he will punish us, what level of development are we operating? Fear, which is level one. Level one moral development. And what impact does it have upon us to obey out of fear of punishment? Do we mature? Do we grow? Do we have more love come into our heart? If you're in a relationship and somebody tells you, hey, do this or I'll punish you, do you, do you have love grow in that relationship? Cold heart. Cold heart, yeah. Cold heart. More fear. We become like the God we worship. Is tithe a heavenly tax? No different than a human government taxing you to support the operations of the government. Is that what tithe is? No. Absolutely not. Is tithe a gift? No. Absolutely not. I'm saying we give it from our heart. We don't give it because we have to. I want you to understand the differences between tithes and offerings under design law. And there is a difference between tithes and offerings. What is the difference to you in tithing and giving offerings? I would say uh, tithing is, especially depending on the amount, uh, I think the reason why it's a set amount is because uh, it's a test kind of in the same vein of character development. Are you willing uh, to part with a certain amount, it's kind of testing yourself. Uh, do you have the character where I, I don't want to give this away, but you know that giving this is, uh, I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically it's just a... Oh, I love where you're going. No, you're exactly right track. You're exactly right track. It's about character. And let's unpack what it's about. You're exactly right. If you're in a business relationship with somebody and somebody owns 10% of your business and they get uh, 10% of the profits, what happens if you don't give them at the end of the year 10% of the profits? What happens within you? What happens to your heart, your mind, your character if you refuse to give them the 10% that you've agreed to give them? So the tithe is about your integrity. 
about your honesty, about your loyalty, about your, uh, your, your personal development of character along these lines. Thank offerings are about thankfulness. When you, if you have that same business partner and you just appreciate him, in addition to his 10%, you, just, you buy him a Christmas present or you give him gifts. That's a different process than returning what's already his to him. And the tithe is not yours to give. It's the Lord's already. Okay? And therefore, returning to the Lord's what the Lord's is about your honesty, integrity, and loyalty. And it was purposely designed this way for you to exercise those abilities. Because the law of exertion, if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. And if you want your loyalty and your devotion and your integrity and your honesty to grow, you have to exercise those abilities. And the tithe is a place for you to do that. The thank offering and other offerings are the exercise of your gratitude and your love and other things. So it's different capacities of your being that are exercised in the two. This is a design law of you. Rather than this other distortion that was said in here about, well, God commanded it and you better or else. That is not how it works. Yes. I believe that the year of Jubilee is related to tithing. Because it's not yours and you're returning. You know what I'm saying? Where you, you remove debts and you return lands. And I find the relationship there. Yes, it would be. Yes, it would be. The question is, does it matter to whom we pay our tithe? Tell us why and how. Because it's supposed to go to present the gospel to carry the gospel. Okay, so, so that, but you didn't say to whom, you said a purpose. Okay. She said it matters because it needs to go to, to spread the gospel. So to, to the purpose of the tithe is different than to whom, isn't it? Yeah. Is there only one entity in the world that spreads the gospel? So can you, as long as the tithe is going to the gospel, do you have some discretion in where you place it? Yes. Or not? Are you required to place it in one institution, one organization? No. Okay. Well, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote the following. There are ministers' wives, and she lists the names of the wives, who have, devoted, uh, who have been devoted, earnest, whole soul workers, giving Bible readings and praying with families, helping along by personal effort just as successful as their husbands. These women give their whole time and are told that they receive nothing for their labors because their husbands receive wages. I tell them to go forward and all such decisions will be revised. The word says the laborer is worth his hire. When any such decision is made, I will in the name of the Lord protest. I will feel it my duty to create a fund from my tithe Money to pay these women who are accomplishing just as essential work as the ministers are doing. And this tithe I will reserve for the work in the same line as that of the ministers. Hunting souls, fishing for souls. That's Daughters of God, page 106, written by Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist Church. She also has another quote where she received tithe money from other people that went into this fund. So it wasn't just her own personal tithe money. She started collecting tithes from other people that were being directed to individuals who were doing gospel work that the church organization wouldn't pay. She should have been disfellowshipped. Right? Don't you think she should have been disfellowshipped for this? <laughs> oh, commended. But do you know if... I'm only reading what Ellen White wrote... I am not advancing a cause or a position. Don't go out of here and say Jennings is teaching that we should give it here, give it there. I don't make that. I get inquiries. Don't email me and say, where do you think we should send our tithe? I don't tell people where to send their tithe. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will, t in, in, for anybody who wants to know, the Holy Spirit will guide you where that money, as, as Ellen White was guided, is to do its best work for the gospel ministry.
But there are some who think rather rules-oriented and have established certain systems that, that are only the right systems to receive the tithe. And if you don't advocate or support those systems to receive it, then you're somehow... Um, you know, a rebel or a heretic or something along these lines. I don't agree with that. I, I agree with Ellen White's position. Any, any, any other thoughts on this question? The original tithe for the children of Israel was from the Levites or the priests. So you can say the priestly duties would be eligible for the pride, for the tithe. Well, the other thing is, whenever we give our money, we need to continue to read financial statements. Oh, read the financial the organizations. We need to know what's being what our money is being used for. What's being produced, what's being done with it. Yes. So uh, the bottom paragraph says the following. Moreover, we give tithes because God established the system in his word. There are times God does d- get your mind around this guys. Listen to what 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 the quarterly is advocating. There are times God doesn't have to explain why. He set something why he set something up he expects us to trust that he is in control we should find out we should find out and be informed on how the system works but then entrust it into the lord's hands don't ask questions the lord said give it to the church give it to the church and and just trust the lord with 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 the rest is that what you heard don't ask questions no explanation required he's in control just trust it is that actually how God wants you to work? God actually wants... Now, let's be clear. God, is, God wants us to believe in him because he says so or because he's proven with evidence that he's trustworthy. Yes? Quick comment. It seems like the widow's might story, though, is a little bit contradictory to that. She was giving to a corrupt organization at the time. Yeah, that she wasn't giving her tithe, though. She was giving an offering. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> yeah. As far as we know, there really wasn't another uh, entity at that time. Um, maybe she, you know, the, uh, I don't know, though, because there is indications that Christ was also uh, had an offering bag that they received support from people, and they received directly donations from people, um, and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, Judas was carrying that offering bag. So, uh, yes. Yeah, okay. So, so what about this idea? Does God, God has given abundant evidence that he's trustworthy. There are times when God may ask us to do something that we don't fully understand, but we don't doubt God's trustworthiness because that's already been established by evidence. But the actual specific task or circumstances, we might not have full comprehension on yet. Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac didn't fully get the whole picture of what was happening, but he understood God was trustworthy. Job, when the things were happening, didn't fully understand what was trying to say. Joseph didn't fully understand when he was in the, in the uh, uh, first 13 years of his slavery. He understood later. So there are times we might be in the middle of something we don't understand at all, but we should never have reason to doubt God's trustworthiness. That has been established on evidence. But just because we may not understand it all doesn't mean we shouldn't ask why. And we shouldn't ask for explanation. God wants to reveal explanations. He wants us to understand. And I think we have a good understanding of what we talked about for why the tithe. There's a purpose for the tithe, not just in supporting the gospel. God doesn't need our money. He sent Peter to get a fish and there was gold in the fish's mouth. He doesn't need our money. We need, though, to grow in character, in loyalty, in devotion, in commitment, in investment. In the cause, it helps our it helps our growth in character to be a participant in this. 
what is there with the Judas stealing money? To the degree we can identify that, we divert the money around the Judas. Yes? So would you say that there is such a thing as irresponsible tithing? To the degree that we know it's being misused, then absolutely yes. Uh, we, we are not held accountable for information we don't have, and many people give their tithe and later find out that it might have been misappropriated. There's no, there's no damage to the donor there. But once we come to know that the money is being misappropriated or being used to misrepresent God and teach lies about God in certain organizations, then to continue to support those organizations would be, I think, uh, 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 not supporting the gospel, but su- supporting the message that opposes the gospel. I also wanted to talk about this idea of God being in control. What do you say to the person who's, who was molested as a child or had their child die in a car wreck or some other tragedy when somebody tells them at church, hey, it's okay, God's in control? That's a big fat lie. God's not, are you saying God's not in control? You, you don't believe then, do you? You have a weak God. We believe in a strong God. I don't know what God you believe. My God's in control. You believe in an evil God. <laughs> you believe in a weak, powerless God, don't you? If you don't have a God that's in control. There's an ultimate. Oh, so, so again, so I was playing, uh, well, I don't want to say the devil's advocate, but <laughs> I was being facetious. Okay. So the point being, what is God in control of? That's the question. Yeah, God is in control of what? The universe. Himself. Okay, number one, God is in control of himself. And number two, the laws upon which his universe run. This is what God governs and controls. He controls himself and all of his own actions and the laws sustaining them constantly, governing and controlling them. And when you understand that, and one of those laws is the law of liberty. He sustains it, which means he doesn't control the choices of people because he he controls the law that gives them the freedom to make their choices. And this is how, when you understand that, you understand how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Because hearts are hardened when hearts reject truth. And God revealed truth. The law of truth was revealed to Pharaoh. Much, much truth about God was revealed. And Pharaoh was then left free, law of liberty to decide for himself, accept or reject. And thus, God hardened his heart through the laws of truth and liberty, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart by exercising his choice to reject it. Only understanding design law do we understand those realities about God's control. It's really important. Yes? I think it would be good to say God purposely does not control our choices. Yes. Because he wants to extend us the right to choose. But more than that. Can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? Right. No. No. If he took, took our, our freedoms from us, then we would simply be robots, puppets, mechanical devices. There would be no love. So only in an atmosphere of freedom does love go. So if God is truly love, then one of the laws is the law of liberty, which is a constant. It never changes. And so again, he controls the law, leaving us really free. Does that make sense? In Wednesday's lesson, it's not easy to stand up for God when you are in the minority. Because God said the Sabbath was to be holy, on which no one was to do any work. First thing, I agree that it's hard to stand up for truth when you're in the minority. It's hard to stand in the face of public and group opposition. It's hard to stand up when all the experts tell you you're wrong. It's hard. Unless, what makes it easy though is when you understand reality. 
See, how hard would it be for you to stand up in a group of 300 people in some remote village somewhere in the, in the world where most of them use tobacco still, and they tell you it helps their lungs work better? How hard would it be for you to stand up there and, and be convinced and stand by your principles that smoking is destructive? Would that be hard? No, it's not hard to stand when you actually know why something is true the understand the laws of health or the laws of God upon which it's established. Then, then you recognize that those people are injuring and hurting themselves. So standing in the face of opposition becomes much easier when you stand on an understanding of God's reality and know how things work. But if it's simply a list of doctrines, well, here are the 28 fundamentals. I memorize them, but I have no idea why they're right. I just know they're the right answers. It would be no different than, again, the example of going to a math class and the math teacher tells you the answers to all the problems. Here's the answers, 23, 48, 37, and you memorize them in order. And so when the question comes up, you know the answer, and the answer is the right answer. But you have no idea why it's the right You don't have to do math. And so some mathematician comes along and works a problem and says, you know, that's not the right answer. Here's the better answer for that problem. You don't know because you don't know how to do math. You just know this person told you it's the right answer. So... Unless you understand reality, you can be duped and deceived and become insecure. And if the whole group comes around, the whole room says, no, it's not 37, it's 48. Everybody else says it. And you're the only one. But you don't know how to do math. You might be persuaded by that group pressure. But if you know how to do math, then you're going to go, hey, all of you can think that 2 plus 2 equals 17. The whole room can say that. I know it doesn't. But you can't do that if you don't know how to do math. If you don't know God's laws and how reality works and why the truth is the truth, then it's hard to stand up, number one. And then the other point, it says, it was a Sabbath holy day on which no one was to do any work. Is that a true or false statement? That's a false statement. Jesus said, yep, the Father works and Jesus works. And Jesus actually said in um, Matthew 12, 5, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? They worked on the Sabbath. So there's lots of work that gets done on the Sabbath. It's not about no one can do any work. It's actually, okay, what isn't to be done on Sabbath? It's about work for self. That's what it's about. Not works of service. It's about work to, to promote self, your business, self-promotion, the stuff that makes your life easy. That's not supposed to be done. It's an opportunity to trust God with your life, your livelihood, the outcomes that you take a day aside that you don't have to keep at the grind. But it might be a day where you volunteer in a clinic for the, um, the homeless and you go down and you provide free medical care on a, on a Sabbath afternoon. This would be perfectly righteous, even though some in, the, in this organization would say you can't do that. You need to do it on a different day of the week. I, I don't mean this classroom. I mean the Adventist church. That's actually happened. They tell Jesus, stop healing on the Sabbath. You, know, you have six days. Heal on the sixth day. When they couldn't get him to stop healing, then they told the people, don't go to him on Sabbath to be healed. There were doctors in California, Adventist doctors, who actually grouped together to open a clinic that would run every Sabbath for free for the homeless. They could come and get free medical and dental care, and the doctors would volunteer their service, no compensation, to help the less fortunate. And uh, they had um, Adventist businessmen who were going to fund this until they found out it was going to be on Sabbath. 
And the businessmen said they won't fund it if they're going to actually help people on Sabbath. They have to do it one of the other days of the week. So I just tell you it's a real discussion that people have. I think both of those people, the medical people and the businessmen, were following what they thought was right. I don't think either party was wanting to harm or cause injury or, or to be in, out of harmony with God. They, but, but there's a different level of maturity being demonstrated in that, a different level of understanding. That we can't uh, help people on Sabbath because it's work is a legal understanding. It's a rule that we must obey. The um, helping in, uh, these people is a design law, loving others, and we're always to love and do good service to other people. Well, we're out of time and we're out of uh, silent spaces, so <laughs> quiet spaces. So we're going to go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and a God of truth and that you have provided overwhelming evidence of your goodness and the reality of how your kingdom runs. And we ask that your spirit of truth will come and take the achievements of Christ, reproduce it in us, writing your character, your law within us, so that we can leave this place in power to truly live out your kingdom of love here on this earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen.